whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thank you, David. Okay, I might go. Yep. Thanks, Pete. I'm all good. Blessed. That's the word we are sort of working with this week and last week. What does it mean? We said really to help our minds grasp it last week, just in case you weren't here. It, it means that uh, to be in the sweet spot, 
to look upon your life and for me to be able to say, Gabe, you're in a sweet spot. Your life is a sweet deal. You're, you're blessed. All right? How do I become blessed? How, how does my life get in a sweet spot? Well, two things. Last week, number one, Psalm 1, blessed is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who, who, who delights in the instruction for our purposes, the Bible, in, in which we see who, who God is, what he's done, and how he wants us to live. The person who meditates, who, who, who looks here, that, that person is in the sweet spot. That person is like a tree planted. Right? That's what we went on last week. That's the first thing. That's the first thing about what it means to be blessed, be in the sweet spot. And Psalm 2 today gives us the second thing. And I've got to tell you, it's a little surprising to me. It's a little it's content I'm not quite all that familiar with. I don't know if it's just my own journey with God. Maybe yours is different. But come with me as we explore the psalm. We get the second thing that goes on. The psalm breaks up into four parts, and you, you, you could argue there's almost four different people speaking in it. Some say three, some say four. And I'll, I'll take you through the four parts and we, in the end, will wrap it up so neatly to say, what is that second thing that puts you in the sweet spot in life? All right, let's go to the first part. The first part, the narrator sort of speaks. He says, why do the nations conspire? Some translations would say, rage. The actual word, interestingly, a word that we used last week. Uh, oh, this can be a, like a memory test. Hagar. <laughs> you remember what that word meant last week in someone? Ah, oh, come on! To meditate, right? It's the word for meditate. And we defined meditate as just reading out aloud. So really, it, I don't know, conspire and rage has this picture of people who are angry and protesting and all that kind of gear. I think what it means to set yourself up against God certainly includes that, but it's a bit more than that, right? What does it actually mean? I'll give you rapid fire a few examples of the sort of thing I think that qualifies, that, that, that the psalm thinks about. Who, who does he have in mind here when he says the nations are conspiring uh, against uh, God and his anointed? We'll talk about his anointed in a second, okay? Here are a few examples. We'll go, we'll go through history. Very important and prominent people. This guy here is Emperor Diocletian. Right? One of the Roman emperors. One of the ones who are uh, probably one of the most arrogant ones. Expanded the Roman Empire. Erected for himself two monuments in Spain as they went out westward. I'll read them out to you. Uh, Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculius, Caesarez Augusti, there's a nice name for a boy, if anybody needs inspiration. For having extended the Roman Empire in the east and west, and for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the Republic to ruin. Another one goes up, it says Diocletian, Jovian, Maximian, Herculius, says Caesarez Augusti, for having Caesars, 
for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. <laughs> Pretty clearly set up against God and his anointed. There's no question about it, right? But more recently, teenagers, who's that? Come on. Pop artist, Lord. Yeah, New Zealand, Eastern European writes uh, a song in which one of the lines, uh, it's a stupid song. Come on, come on, I'll tell you my secrets. I'm kind of like a prettier Jesus. You know, it's wonderful. Why would you call yourself Lord in the first place? It's not a real name. Why would you, why would you have lyrics like that? <laughs> uh, Hagar. Against God. Against his anointed one. Right? Right? Parliament of Victoria. Chains or suppression conversion practices prohibition bill carrying out a religious practice including but not limited to a prayer-based practice, a deliverance practice or an exorcism. This is hot press. Tasmanians thinking similarly Law Reform Institute around our own legislation in our state against conversion practices. Uh, you believe that this man Jesus can heal, restore, bring hope? It could be the answer to someone's problem. You're praying for them. Get prosecuted. Hagar. Right? And just before it all gets all very at arm's length, and we're talking about big and important things and important people. <laughs> uh, there was a time in my life where this is more or less what I thought and felt. Didn't want God or anyone but me to be in control of my life, to rule my life, before whom I should subject myself? <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I, I praise God for the moments of honesty that I actually drilled down to that statement and from there God took over in the way that I think Psalm 2 wants to take over. But this is what it means, right? This is what it means to say, I think this is what Psalm 2 talks about when it says, why do the nations, you, me, Hagar, conspire against God and against his anointed one, it said. Anointed one, I, uh, man, I could spend so much time there, I'm not going to because we don't have time for it really, but, but, but the word literally is um, against God's Messiah. And, and world history and human history, one minute crash course, God uh, selects because he wants to bring his anointed one into the world, a people group called Israel in the Old Testament, and, and they, he sets their bump in a place called Israel where there's a place of worship called the temple on Mount Zion, his holy hill that comes out later on in the psalm, and they ask for a king and they have an earthly king and let me ask you what is significant about Israel and Mount Zion 
and the Israelite king, nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, we could go on about how insignificant all of that is. There's only one thing that matters about this earthly monarchy, and that is the fact that God has appointed this particular monarch, this king. And if you read what this king is supposed to be like all throughout the Old Testament, don't become rich, don't get chariots, don't go political alliances, don't do all of that. Do one thing and do one thing. Only copy for yourself a copy of my Torah. Meditate on it day and night. And later on in the psalm, proclaim it. This is the job of the Israelite king. That's it. But from this lineage, throughout history, the whole point is for the real king to come. Christ comes as the anointed one. <laughs> and so everything we read here about <laughs> Hagar or conspiring against God and his anointed one, we should take, we should read, we should understand, as not against some earthly ethnic king, but against Christ, right? God's son. Why do the nations conspire? Why do they set themselves up against God and his anointed one? It's a rhetorical question. And then there's a response of God that the psalm gives. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. I've got a friend who recently shared with me that her dad used to, when it's strong winds blowing and thunder and lightning, uh, would take her outside, feel the power of it, and then he would say, God is moving his furniture. And that's, that's why you feel what you feel here. You know, I tried to look for a, an image, since we're sort of going with pictures this morning a bit, um, picture of God laughing. And I couldn't find one that, for me, truly captured the sheer size and glory and splendor of the one enthroned in heaven, laughing, <laughs> scoffing. I, I, I implore you to try and come up with an image in your mind, perhaps of what that would look like. Then I want to ask you, Maybe just yell out to me, what does this show us about God's state of mind here in response to the nation's rage? What, what, how do, yeah, how does God feel about this? Just yell out maybe. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's the elephant... <laughs> looking at the ant going, <laughs> it's ridiculous. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe another one. It's right, absolutely. I'm not chasing something specific. No, I mean, anger comes up in the psalm, but at this point it's laughing. It's just a very interesting thing to mention. Why not... God is full of wrath. No, God is laughing. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating to me how God is described, characterized as laughing? Uh, you can only laugh, I think, if you feel secure. 
You're not threatened at all. Not one bit about what goes on. It's so ridiculous, really. I think is is why the the psalmist at this point employs such an incredible image. I mean, God is not described as laughing. I don't know, I didn't do the check. How often does God laugh in scriptures? Not sure, but this would be a rare occurrence. What makes him laugh? People trying to set themselves up against him. That makes him laugh. (laughs) It's funny, you know? And so the application for us on this point, I want to drill in a little bit. As, As... we mentioned that last week, you know, our own culture is sort of in many ways setting itself up against God and against church and all things religious and Christian. Um, history has, we mentioned law reform institute things and, and you know, one of the, I, I get that there needs to be a sense of sobriety around these things. We need to be realistic about the cost of what it's going to come to to follow Jesus and that the future looks different. But one of the things that I find distinctly missing in our hearts and minds as we face these things is the image of God laughing. We have the image of of this. Um, That's what's promoted over websites and all those sorts of things. The image that the Psalms give us is God is laughing. <laughs> and, and, and how wonderfully is this illustrated to us in the New Testament um, where Peter and John in Acts chapter 4 are brought before the Sanhedrin because they preached and proclaimed Jesus and they are threatened by this council and they say, you stop doing that or we'll take your lives, we'll take your livelihood. Much the same thing that many of our brothers and sisters all across the world still face today. You know, things are turning for us but it's Perhaps not persecution yet. These are, this is persecution for Peter and John. And what do they do? We read in Acts chapter 4. Here's what they did. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. They reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. And they said, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea And everything in them, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. Doesn't quote the verse about laughing, but I'm pretty sure they had it in their minds. We need to have this in our minds. We need to understand who God is in his sheer sovereignty, <laughs> and in his laughter. Not to read arrogance in us, but to certainly defer to the confidence we should have in God, in his greatness and his sovereignty. And that he has installed his king on Zion, his holy mountain. It's not talking about Israel. It's talking about Christ. It's talking about the heavenly Mount Zion the coming king who will return. I am glad, certain, coming. God's king has enemies. God laughs at them. And now the psalm moves on to the third part. The king is speaking. Here's what the king says. And, and this is a unique 
feature of this psalm because these would be the words of Jesus then, right? We need to understand this is Jesus speaking. I'll proclaim the Lord's decree. He, the Father, said to me, You are my son, today I've become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Notice the shift from past to future. Future reality is yet to come. Christ will return and every square inch of history and humanity will bow the knee to him. It will happen. It has already begun to happen in history, but it will be completed. Can I read to you an excerpt from a sermon that I read, uh, read of by, by a guy called William S. Plumer? Let me go back in history first to the Roman emperors. Take this in because it's vivid and it's really powerful. Of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty. Atrocious cruelty. One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned, one was strangled, one died in miserable captivity, one fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital, one died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide, a third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work, five were assassinated by their own people or servants, five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths, several of them having an untold complication of diseases, and eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. Among these, this is very vivid, was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him. He gathered up his clotted blood and threw it into the air, exclaiming, Thou has conquered, O thou Galilean. Thou has conquered. Understand this, Psalm 2 says. This will be the cry and the claim of every single ruler of the earth. It already has been for some. It will be for all in the future. And so the psalm finishes with its great invitation. Because this is true. <laughs> Therefore, you kings, you people, us gathered here today, be wise, be warned, serve the Lord with fear, celebrate his rule, with trembling. Kiss the sun or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment.
Can I ask you this morning, what is your response to Jesus? Do you conceive of him as a king? As the great king? I think we pollute the image of Jesus so much these days. This is such a, such a big picture of Jesus. Are you kissing the sun? Which literally is what kings did. A greater, a lesser to a greater as a sign of humility and abandonment. Are you serving him? Are you rejoicing in his rule? Be wise. Be warned. <laughs> Kiss the son lest he be angry. Now, let me finish. You may ask yourself, why would I do, maybe like I did once in my life, why would I do this? You may say to yourself, I, I actually struggle with the confronting Aggressive language of this psalm. He's angry. He'll destroy you. He will, you know, this is what I don't like about religion. This is what I don't like about Christianity. This is what I don't, I, I don't want to do this. This is not for me. Why would, I, why would I do this? This is my problem, you might say. It's cultic almost. It's like a cult, right? In fact, I've recently been watching a TV show on Netflix on how to become a tyrant. I'm struggling with parenting a bit, so you need to go and look elsewhere. You need to look at the playbook that Idi Amin and Joseph Stalin and Muammar Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and what, what, what have they done? How, what, what have they done to become the successful leaders that they were? They? Don't do it. <laughs> I admire them. Terrible examples to follow, absolutely right, except for one thing in, in, in support of the critic. Here's the rules from the playbook. Create a loyal base of followers. Believe that you alone can fix it all. They transformed their societies. They had a desire to transform their societies. They believed they were the centre of the universe. Be a man of the people. Believe in your ability and your destiny to rule. Construct the worldview of the people who you are trying to rule. All of this is true about Jesus, <laughs> says the critic. Why is he different? Why should I kiss the sun here? Isn't this just another ploy? Another one of those things? No, it's not. It's not. Two reasons. and a meditation on the instruction about who God is and what he's done will lead you there. The first difference is who he is. He's not like these guys. He didn't come from where they came from. They're from among the people. Christ is not even from among here. This is Christmas, yeah? Born unto us <laughs> as the Son of God. And if that's not enough to make you go, yes, I should give my life to him, 
What does he do? The cross. There is no king. There is no tyrant. There is nothing on offer to you in this life. No religion, in fact. No worldview. No way of thinking in which the king of glory comes to you. Not only does he come to you, he takes you in your undeserved state as a subject and then he gives his life to you and then he invites you into his life as he has made up everything about you that is not right. (laughs) He's not like any of them. And he's like nothing else on offer that is that good and that loving and that giving and that caring. With that in mind, dear church, let us be wise. Celebrate his rule with absolute trembling. Yes, let us kiss him. Because the psalm then finishes with that wonderful line. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you want to be in the sweet spot, find out who God is, what he's done and how he wants you to live. You know where that's going to lead you? Trust in his king. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Believe in him. (laughs) Say yes to him. Invite him into your life. Let him shape you. Let him mould you. And on that last day, you are going to cry out in triumph. Thou hast conquered, you great Galilean. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you. We confess that we hardly understand the full size and shape of your majesty and your kingship. Yet I pray that you grant us this morning a greater experience of it. Edge us closer to do exactly what Psalm 2 says with such convinced and confirmed hearts. Let us serve you, let us celebrate you, let us kiss you. And in that, may we be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. We're going to sing a song of response and then we're pretty much done for the day.